I first wrote about this case in one of my earlier books in 2014. It's a gothic Victorian tale of magic and mystery, murder and madness, and the yearning for immortality, right for a chapter in a penny dreadful, like the stories of Dorian Gray, Frankenstein and Dracula. It's a tale that grips as it horrifies, fascinates, yet simultaneously strikes at the fear inside of us all, that if we unleash the primal forces of the supernatural in our quest for ancient and forbidden secrets and knowledge, it may show us where its allegiances lie and destroy us entirely. The location of this tale is the tiny island of Iona in 1929 where a missing young woman is found naked and dead, lying on a cross cut into the earth on the top of a fairy mound. There is a knife in her hand and a look of terror etched across her face. She has no wounds, she is barefoot, but the soles of her feet are clean. This could be the start of a Sherlock Holmes novel. Yet indeed, this would have been ideal for author and spiritualist Sir Arthur Conan Doyle for it strikes particularly close to home, and it encompasses the most cryptic, unsolved disappearance and death of an eccentric student of the esoteric arts, whose adventures into the netherworlds would be her undoing. Iona is a mystical place, rich in the lore of dragons, angels, and vengeful fairies. Its victim, a perhaps naive adept of the occult, who believed she could step into Summerland and return unscathed. Said one of her best friends, Dion Fortune, I do not object to reasonable risks, but it appeared to me that Mac, as we called her, was going into very deep waters, and there was certain to be trouble. In the early 1900s, Marie Nora Emily Edith Bornerio, most commonly known as Netta, spent much of her early life living in the affluent London suburb of Kew. From a young age, she'd shown a keen interest in the rising field of spiritualism and the possibility of communing with the dead. And perhaps this had risen from the loss of her mother. She was not close to her father, a doctor who had remarried and was now living in Egypt. Those who knew her said she had an extraordinary intelligence, and as a young woman, she wrote articles for the Occult Review. She preferred solitude and rarely socialised, except for attending spiritualist meetings and psychic gatherings. She joined the Alpha and Omega Temple. This had been established in 1888 as an offshoot of the infamous Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the temple was established by ritual magician Samuel Liddell Mathers after his expulsion from the Golden Dawn. Mathers was a prominent occult scholar who had led a revivalist movement of the esoteric and occult in the late 1800s. He had held office in the Rosicrucians before founding the Golden Dawn, where he created ritual occult workings by studying the ancient Egyptian magic systems and Dr. John Dee's Enochian magic to create a potent array of rituals. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was one of the many prominent members there, as was Irish poet William Butler Yeats. Dracula author Bram Stoker was alleged to be a member, 
and the Beast, also known as the wickedest man in the world, Alistair Crowley, who was initiated into the Order at the age of 23, shortly after leaving Cambridge University. However, a battle of ego and magical power ensued between the founder, Mathis, and Crowley. Fighting for control of the Order, it's said that the pair engaged in a fierce battle of spiritual warfare, with Mathis summoning a vampire entity to attack Crowley, while Crowley retaliated by unleashing Beelzebub and an army of 49 demons against Mathis after his beloved bloodhounds had suddenly died at the hands of this vampire, Crowley believed. When Mathis died some years later, no cause of death was given, and while his wife Mona said he had contracted Spanish influenza, privately she was said to have been most concerned that Crowley had claimed the life of his arch-nemesis through spiritual attack. Both Mathers and Crowley ended up being expelled from the Golden Dawn as a result of their shenanigans, and Mathers then founded his own order, the Alpha and Omega Temple. Thirty years after this, Miss Netta Fornario came along and joined them. This occult order included the wife of Oscar Wilde, and it drew on a synthesis of Western magic tradition including Kabbalah, alchemy, divination, astrology, Masonic symbolism and ritual magic, adapting systems of magic from ancient Egypt and England's Dr John Dee. Dee was perhaps the most famous hermetician and he happened to have lived in Mortlake, near Kew, where Netta now lived sometimes referred to as the Queen's Conjurer for his alleged influence on Queen Elizabeth I, Dr. D lived at Mortlake from 1565 to 1595. He created Enochian magic based on the language of angels. His assistant, Edward Kelly, would stare at a flat shoe stone or mirror and believed he was in direct communication with angels. Dr. D would write down the messages the angels gave in this Enochian language of spells, which became widely used by practitioners of the occult ever since the 1600s. Unfortunately, the majority of Dr. D's writings were destroyed by fire at his home, and the few that survived are now housed in the British Museum. But perhaps it's possible that one of the most influential magicians ever known initially influenced Netta Fornario to pursue her left-hand path. Netta was raised by her maternal grandparents in Mortlake, Kew, after the loss of her mother shortly after her birth. She was raised in a strictly Protestant household, but as she grew to adulthood, Netta quickly found herself turning to spiritualism to meet her need for esoteric knowledge and perhaps for desired contact with her deceased mother. She was a regular attendee at the Alpha and Omega Temple and she developed close friendships there. This really was at the height of the spiritualist movement in Victorian England. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in 1918 wrote that this movement is infinitely nearer to positive proof of the afterlife than any other religious development with which I am acquainted. Leading cultural figures were immersing themselves in a quest for transcendence and sacred knowledge through the pursuit of spiritualism. For Netta, however, her keen interest soon turned to obsession. As she reached 33, she decided to set off for an extended stay on the tiny and remote island of Iona off the west coast of Scotland. 
At the time, houses on the island had no electricity, no heating, no running water, and there were no phones or daily newspapers. But it was an ancient place renowned for peace and tranquillity. Perhaps Netta saw the solitude it offered, a place for reflection and calm. But there was a lot more to Iona than that. Legendary English diarist Dr Samuel Johnson wrote of his visit to Iona, describing the strange magnetic energy of the island and its powerful effect on him. Pre-Raphaelite artist John Duncan would go to Iona to paint, and he spoke of hearing fairy music in the distance while he worked. He told of his many encounters with the fairy race. In the 7th century, Abbot of Iona, a monk named Adelman, wrote in his journals about St Columba, who legend had it could control the weather on the island and keep the dragons at bay. The abbot wrote of encounters with such creatures, as well as his own visitations by angelic beings. Perhaps that is why this mystical retreat now became home to Netta, for it was known by those closest to her that she had become fixated with the need to communicate with the supernatural and the dead through any means. On her arrival at Iona, she found lodgings with the family there. The Scotsman newspaper of November the 27th, 1929, writes, This alien woman, who dressed in the fashion of the arts and crafts movement, with long cape and hand-woven tunic, settled into the house of someone only known as Mrs. Macrae. The 33-year-old Fornario spent her time walking the island and in long trances. She was a bohemian with alluring dark eyes and long black hair, always worn in braids. She wore long robes and would have been viewed as arty, eccentric, or in modern times as a hippie or new ager. It was later reported that she spent almost all her time alone in her bedroom or out on the moors at night. It seemed that she would spend almost all of her nights out roaming alone returning in the early mornings to write in a journal in her room. As an initiate of an esoteric order, Netta was a practising occult adept, and she was of the belief that one of her callings was to heal people through telepathy. In fact, prior to her death, she'd sent a message to her housekeeper in Kew, saying not to expect her back from Iona any time soon, because she was permanently presently engaged in a terrible case of healing. She also appeared to want to heal the island too. Dedemia Harding of Bradford Golden Dawn says she wanted to bring all the unseen forces at numerous astral levels together in one place, which would have created the power for an enormous healing ritual. It was later believed she had been trying to contact the spirits of the island through induced states of trance. She had a habit of falling into extended trances for hours at a time, and in fact, she once told her host that on one occasion her trance had lasted an entire week. But she advised her host, Mrs Cameron, that should this happen, under no circumstances must she call for a doctor. Netta informed her that no medical intervention would be necessary. Though her father was a doctor, Netta was estranged from him, 
and she had little time for conventional orthodox medicine her housekeeper in london mrs vayletter said it was common for her mistress to moan and cry out piteously if she were prevented from healing a person whom she thought she could cure no one really knew exactly what it was netta did at night when she went out on the moors but her behaviour was beginning to disturb the family she was lodging with they noticed that her fingernails and jewellery had turned black and her once healthy skin had grown increasingly pallid they said it was almost as though at times she was in a trance for she would look at them with a faraway stare through glazed eyes not really focused at all on where she was or what they were saying to her according to francis king's ritual magic in england netta reportedly revealed to mrs cameron that certain people were affecting her telepathically that she was under attack then one day she became suddenly terribly distressed frantically she told her host family that she must leave the island immediately she would give no reason and yet the family did not think there was any kind of emergency at her grandparents home in london as they had received no telegram her continued insistence that she must leave and her increasing state of desperation however led the mother of the family to help her pack up her belongings and the family helped take them down to the harbour even though they knew being sunday there were no ferries until the following day with her belongings now at the harbour netta had no choice but to return to her lodgings and she remained in her room quietly all day until evening came when she hurriedly came out of it telling the surprised family she no longer needed to leave they would later describe that as she said this her face bore the expression of resignation she spoke as though having some kind of fatalistic inevitability as though her destiny was sealed and there was no way to change things now it was later reported in the scotsman that when she informed her host she must return to london she had talked of a rudderless boat that went across the sky and she spoke of messages she had received from other worlds the following day the mother of the family mrs cameron realized she had not seen or heard netta all day which was unusual because netta had a habit to go out at night and then spend the rest of the day in her room mrs cameron had heard no sounds or movement at all a little puzzled she knocked on netta's door several times but on receiving no replies she opened the door to find the room empty although several of netta's personal belongings were still there curiously in the bedroom fireplace lay the burnt embers of what looked like a manuscript her bed appeared not to have been slept in concerned now after netta's recent distress the mother father and son decided to set out across the moors of the tiny three point five by one mile island to look for her they searched for hours but they found no sign of her in the wilderness that night netta did not return home the next morning the family arranged for one of the islanders to go to the mainland and bring back a policeman when the policeman duly arrived he accompanied by many volunteers who lived on the island set out again in search of netta it was late in the evening that the son of family she lodged with stumbled across a horrifying sight led to the scene by the barking of a dog the boy was taken to the spot where netta's body lay 
an isolated spot of peat bogs on a fairy mound on the south of Loch Steinig. She was lying on the cold ground, naked apart from a long black robe with a coat sigils on its lapel. The ground beneath her body appeared to have been carved into the shape of a large cross. In her left hand, she held a long knife, which had to be pried out of her death grip. Her body was lined with fierce, deep scratch marks, according to her best friend Dion Fortune. Her face was fixed in a death mask expression of absolute terror. The cross beneath her was speculated to have been carved by her, perhaps as some form of attempt to defend herself from attack, or perhaps as some kind of magic ritual she'd been carrying out. Her toes were cut and bruised and seemed to indicate that she had been running at speed over rocks and rough ground, quite possibly in flight from something that was chasing her. The soles of her feet, however, were in no way damaged or injured. How had she travelled over rough, broken and sometimes perilous terrain without any marks or injuries to the soles of her feet? What also puzzled the policemen and the islanders was how her body had remained undiscovered for two days, despite the island being tiny and the number of thorough searches that had been conducted. She seemed to have been missing from sight for two days. How could they have missed her? Her death was determined to have occurred between 10pm on the 17th and 1.30pm on the 19th. Her cause of death was determined to be heart failure from exposure, though many believed from the expression on her face that she had died of fright, that terror had taken her life that night. It appeared that Netta may have spent the last few hours of her life in a desperate fight with someone or something that was not quite of this world. Unexpectedly, for someone suffering exposure, she was not curled up into a ball, nor had she attempted to burrow in an attempt to keep warm, as would have been the usual pattern for a person suffering hypothermia when paradoxical undressing often takes place, with the person shedding their clothes in the belief they are very hot when really it is the cold affecting their nerves. If she had left her lodgings clothed in more than a black cloak, where were her clothes now? Had she worn no underwear? Although, of course, magic rituals often require nudity. No clothes were found beside her, nor anywhere else on the small island. There were whispered rumours from islanders of the sighting of a mysterious cloaked figure, seen with Netta shortly before her disappearance, and reports of seeing strange glowing blue lights in the sky. After Netta was found spread-eagled and dead on the fairy mound, the newspaper The Scotsman, on November the 27th, 1929, wrote whether she died from a mystic duel, was killed by a feuding member of an occult organisation, or simply died from exposure. There is no doubt that the story leaves some unanswered questions. Dion Fortune, one of her friends, declared that Moina Mathers, the wife of their leader of the Alpha and Omega Temple, had killed Netta despite the fact that Moina herself was actually dead. 
fortune declared that Moina had done this by means of astral assassination. Moina Mathers was known as the seeress of the temple, and she was said to have provided a great amount of occult information to the order through her mediumship abilities. She was also a talented artist. She met their leader, Samuel Lidder, at the British Museum. After his death in 1918, she became head of a successor organisation, calling itself the Rosicrucian Order of the Alpha Omega. When her husband had died, Moina had become convinced that her husband's death had been caused by a combination of exhaustion brought on by incessant communication from his secret chiefs, supernatural beings who channelled occult information to him, and through astral attack by his old enemy, Alistair Crowley. Indeed, Moina herself expressed fear that Crowley would come after her as his next victim. In a new order she had established, Moina was assisted by a mysterious unnamed man called Frater X. It was Dion Fortune's assertion that Moina practised black magic and was firmly of the opinion that Moina was responsible for Netta's death on Iona, despite being beyond the veil. According to Radina Pitt, though, when Dion Fortune was still a member of the Alpha and Omega, Moina had accused her of revealing secrets of the Order in her writings. It was said that this was the reason why Moina expelled Fortune from the Order. Could this have caused Fortune to cast a finger of guilt at Moina without warrant? Or was there truth to her accusation? Netta Fornario was, of course, a former adept of Moina Mathers, who was viewed as a most powerful occultist. Dion Fortune, the pseudonym of Violet Mary Firth Evans, was one of Netta's closest friends, a psychiatrist, occultist and author. Some say that behind the shadows of Gerald B. Gardner, England's foremost witch, lurked Dion Fortune. Her mentor had been the head of the Theosophical Society, a Dr. Theodore Moriarty an occultist and Freemason. He set up a Masonic lodge in Hammersmith, London, with unusually mostly, if not all, female officers, including Netta, who held the position of Outer Guardian. Had powerful dark forces been sent to kill Netta? Or had she herself taken a step too far inside the shadowy realms of the astral worlds and naively unleashed demonic forces that had dragged her to hell itself? At least four of Alistair Crowley's known mistresses were found dead, killing themselves in quick succession, or were they killed by some form of attack by forces summoned in dark rituals. As for Netta's pursuits and her subsequent strange demise, her friend Dion Fortune offered information. She said, at one time we did work together, but before her death we went our separate ways. I don't object to reasonable risk, but it appeared she was going in too deep, and trouble would come. Whether she was killed by psychic attack, stayed out on the astral plane too long, or whether she strayed into an elemental kingdom, who shall know? The facts, however, cannot be questioned. Head of the order that Netta belonged to, Samuel Mathis himself, claimed to be able to summon the demon Beelzebub. But he had given very strict and ominous warnings to fellow members of the order that unless the magic circle of protection was created with pristine accuracy, the magician would be killed instantly or would self-destruct. 
as a result of perilously imprecise summoning during these treacherous ritual workings said dion fortune she was especially interested in the green ray elemental contacts too much interested in them for my peace of mind and i became nervous and refused to cooperate with her who are the green ray elementals they are said to derive from the seven rays in esoteric philosophies such as theosophy or gnosticism the rays being types of light matter comprised of waves and energy that are thought to have created the universe the green ray is believed to be on a strata of the etheric planes located to higher level than those of the lower astral where the darker deities of babylon and akkad dwell the green ray is thought to be the etheric plane where the fey race the fairies and other nature spirits dwell netta was trying to gain entry to this plane of energy and vibration in which the fairies are said to live but did she erringly enter the lower plains instead where demons and darkness claim dominion or did the fairies themselves turn against her and hurl their wrath upon her the fae are historically known to refer to themselves as the gentry scholars versed in their lore would be quick to point out that the fairy race are nature spirits whose loyalty does not lie with humans when netta lived in london she had been obsessed by the writings of fiona macleod or rather the writer william sharp a scottish poet and novelist who also wrote under the pen name of fiona macleod at one point netta had gone to see an opera that was based on macleod's writing more than twenty times and she wrote a subsequent review of the production the opera was a tale of fairy magic and folk in which the fay are cast as a breed of strong immortals that humans are in fear yet awe of because of their supreme ability to interfere with and manipulate humans netta it seems had an unwavering fascination with the fairy race she wrote of students of mysticism who are able to understand the great truths behind the gossamer curtain of the fay and presumably classing herself as one of these students however she also mentions the appearance of the demonic in the opera which she says symbolizing dark atavism and crucially she points out the reaction of these lower principles to the stimulus of superconsciousness often produces disastrous results in other words demonic and darker forces may react strongly to anyone who attempted to reach and interact with the hidden realms this implying then that she did seem well aware of the dangers of attempting to enter the unseen world and of being confronted with the malignant forces that dwell within it this knowledge however did not stop her quest in her review of macleod's opera published in the occult review magazine she quotes the lines of a character from the original written version there is no dream save the dream of death and she interprets this line as explicitly meaning as macleod says that death itself is only a dream 
The ultimate reality lies in the other world, where all of life is one. Netta remonstrates that these lines were left out of the opera and should not have been. This, perhaps, is a crucial clue that Netta wished to go there, to the land beyond death, where life for her was more real, after bodily death, where she could continue in a land where time never ended. In the 1920s, at the height of spiritualism in Victorian England, Netta takes herself off to the remote, tiny island of Iona in the Outer Hebrides. She disappears. When her body is found two days later, she's lying naked on a fairy mound and her expression is a death mask of terror. She's barefoot and yet her feet have no bruises, no marks. They're pristine. How did she get to where she was found? And why did she die? Why did Netta go to the island of Iona? Well, her favourite author, who's adapted opera she had gone to see more than 20 times in London, he actually had a very strong connection to the island. He spent his childhood there. As William Sharp, he'd also written Hebridean legends. And in his book, he tells the story of an incident that happened to him when he was a boy. One day, he went to call on his friend, Elsie, who he hadn't seen for a few days. When he got to her house, her mother was there. But Elsie wasn't, and he asked her mother where she was. Her mother said, cryptically, that Elsie had been gone for a few days now. Her mother said, as she left, she turned and smiled, and because of that terrifying smile, I couldn't say a word. Her daughter had believed she was in communication with the long-dead spirits of the monks who had once lived on the island. She said that her daughter had believed that they were attacking her and that she must go to the only place on the island where she would be safe, a place where they would not be able to follow her, the fairy mound. Elsie's mother went on to tell him of how, long ago, when the monks had lived in a commune on the island, they burnt a woman. She wasn't a woman, but they thought she was. She was a fairy, a sheen, and it's ill to any that bring harm to them, said Elsie's mother. She said that though the spirits of the dead monks were still very strong, they were not able to enter fairyland along a path which led to the fairy mound. And this was where her daughter had gone to seek refuge. It was at this exact spot that Netta's body had been found. What exactly happened to her has never really been solved. There was no autopsy, and she was buried within days. The place where she was found is well known to the island folk as the Fairy Mound or Druid's Hill. It's long been associated with magic and supernatural visitations. During Netta's stay on Iona, the host family 
had become rather disturbed when they noticed that all her silver jewellery had turned black, along with her fingernails. Well, a humid climate can cause this, but Iona is far from humid. An acidic body also can be the cause, but so too can supernatural visitations. For eons, tales of encounters with demons and all manner of unidentified entities have been described as appearing with the most overpowering stench of sulphur. Sulphur turns silver black too. Is this the most compelling evidence that she had gone too far in her endeavours to reach the Fey race in Summerland? Had the fairies really communicated with her? And had they shown her their contempt for humans by causing her ruination? Author Richard Wilson in the 70s tracked down the son of the family she lodged with, Callum Cameron who was 12 years old when Netta stayed with them. He said when she died on Sithine Moor, the fairy mound, Netta was just digging in the ground, he said. She was digging to try to get to the fairies inside. Had her soul been taken inside the fairy mound and the shell of her body left behind? After Netta's death, her housekeeper in Kew was quoted in the newspapers, talking of Netta's life in London. She said several times she had been to the far beyond and had come back to life, after spending some time in another world. This time, however, Netta did not come back. But how did she get to the spot in which she was found, in bare feet, yet with the soles of her feet uninjured and completely unmarked. Writes the Scottish correspondent, the only injuries are to the upper parts of her toes, which are torn and bloody. They continue, the sole explanation is that she had been running on her toes. It's well known that witches can travel long distances by skimming along the ground on the front of their toes, creating an appearance of floating. For the islanders, this is conclusive proof she is a witch. There is no sign she has been dragged there. Well, another rather outlandish theory was also put forward by Ron Halliday, a paranormal researcher, who said it was entirely possible that this was because she had been levitating at the time while writer Alistair Alpin McGregor suggests she was in a trance, and says Netta had told people she went to Iona as she had a call of the island, but he questions the circumstances surrounding which led to her death. How otherwise than in a trance could a woman unable in the ordinary way to proceed on foot more than a few hundred yards at a time, having travelled so far over territory, so precipitous, so broken, so perilous, whereas her heels and much of the soles of her feet were in no way injured. Her toes were torn and bleeding. She must have reached that hollow of death by hurrying through the heather and over the rocks on the tips of her toes, he says. Why was she fleeing so desperately? The soles of her feet were uninjured, yet it looked as though she had fled, tearing her toes as she went. 
yet the heels of her feet were completely undamaged too, which seems rather odd when she had been barefoot. It was as though she had been fleeing on tiptoes, toes all torn up and bloodied, and run she may have, for the death mask of terror seems to imply that this had to be the case. Despite her fragile health, that night, we must presume, she fled someone or something. Dion Fortune, when describing the sharp, deep scratches found on Nessa's body, although it is not revealed how she knew this, adds that she had knowledge of Tims, who also, just like Nessa, had been found with strange scratch marks on their bodies. She also reveals that she herself experienced an astral attack upon herself that left her with shattered health. She says, I know for myself the peculiar horror of such an experience, its insidiousness, its potency, and its disastrous effects on mind and body. Adding, it's not easy to get people to come forward and bear witness. They know there is very little likelihood of their being believed, and they will be more likely to earn themselves a reputation for mental unbalance than for anything else. Secondly, because any tampering with the foundations of the personality is an experience of such peculiar and unique horror that the mind shrinks from the contemplation of it, and one cannot talk about it. Was a preternatural creature hunting Netta that night. Had Moina Matthews, Samuel Little Matha's wife, the talent for summoning and commanding a beast from the underworld to do her bidding, albeit astrally? And let us not forget, there is another story which perhaps could bear some resemblance to the fate of Netta. It took place in another very ancient and mystical area in Cornwall, in the year 1938, and it led to a most unexpected death of another woman after the ritual summoning of the devil himself, apparently, in a cottage rented by Alistair Crowley. The lady was a Mrs. Catherine Laird Arnold Foster, and she either died of a stroke, or, the other version says, the devil took her as his own, after frightening her to death. A companion, Gerald Vaughan, who'd been present that evening, became mad and had to be taken to a lunatic asylum to live out the rest of his life in insanity. How did Netta manage to get so far in bare feet and in poor health? Could someone have carried her? Dion Fortune said. She had evidently been on an astral expedition from which she never returned, adding she was not a good subject for such experiments, for she suffered from some defect of the pituitary body. It does seem that there are references that say Netta stayed in her room quite a lot during her stay because of weakness in her physical condition, burning the candle at night, she wore herself out with incessant writing in her journal until dawn. It was said that though she roamed wildly alone at night across the heather moors and beaches, she was also, accordingly, 
unable to walk too far in one go, and frequently had to stop to rest. Says Mary Irvine for the Scottish Correspondence, Netta is not in good health. Daily exercise is a few hundred yards walk along the beach, close to her lodgings. Some days she is so tired, she does not leave her room. Well, she was a mile away from the farmhouse, where she lodged when she was found, which is quite some distance for someone described as being in poor health. Was there a cloaked figure with Netta after she disappeared, as the rumours say? Had another figure, rumoured to have been seen cloaked in the dark, stalked her from London to this sacred isle? The sinister path is the name given to those who pursue occultism, and so, rather than luminal and spiritual in origin, had her foe been of the human kind? How did her body go unnoticed for two days on this tiny, open island? Had she been pursued, held somewhere, and then killed in a hideous open-air sacrifice? Of revenge of some kind? Or could poison, a deadly herb or plant, have rendered Netta insensible and incapable, and left to die on the cold, freezing more, because she couldn't move? Said the Occult Review in February 1930, one newspaper alludes to mysterious stories on the island about blue lights having been seen in the vicinity of where her body was found. And there is also a story of a cloaked man. Richard Wilson, however, in his study on magic in England, says the alleged penalty for breaking this group's oath of silence, and he means the Alpha and Omega group she belonged to, was to be subjected to a current of will, which would cause the offender to become paralysed as if blasted by lightning or fall dead. And Dion Fortune wrote, It is not without reason that initiates have always guarded their secrets behind closed doors. To disclose sufficient to be adequate, without disclosing sufficient to be dangerous, is my problem. This knowledge has not been attained without cost, nor, I suspect, will the divulging of it be altogether free from cost either. Desimir Harding of the Bradford Golden Dawn says, Netta is said to have offended Moina Mathers, wife of Samuel Mathers, and one of the founders of the Golden Dawn. She also adds, being born in Cairo, Netta was perhaps already closer to the mystery schools than those who tried to emulate the Egyptian magic with the Golden Dawn, as Netta was a true Egyptian, something her occult temple contemporaries could only dream of, and something that may have caused bad feeling amongst them. We only have the islanders' accounts of what happened, which could conceivably be at best misleading. 
Netta was buried under equally mysterious circumstances. Why no proper autopsy was ever done further fuels the mystery. Yet was the biggest foe inside Netta's own mind. When Richard Wilson tracked down the son of the family Netta had lodged with, Cullum Cameron, he said it was just a normal kitchen knife that she was found clutching in her death grip. His opinion of Netta was that she was just weird. He said she was a disturbed woman, that's all. And in this former 12-year-old boy's mind, she was an eccentric, and her undoing was misadventure. She died of exposure, he said, just like the doctor determined. Was he earnest? As we must assume. Or could he be playing down the oddities of the case? Was Netta possibly the victim of some sort of magic attack, or... Had she simply driven herself mad? Did she develop schizophrenia and believed she was being attacked, when in reality, this was all in her mind? Alistair Crowley's first wife, Rose, died in a lunatic asylum. His second wife went insane. One of the most commonly quoted excerpts regarding Crowley's romantic relationships is Five mistresses committed suicide, and scores ended in the gutter as alcoholics, drug addicts, or in mental institutions. Netta was delving into the unknown, risking the fracture of her mind by seeking contact with immortals and elementals, and roaming alone into the night in solitude. With just her own thoughts, this surely could be sufficient to drive a person insane, notwithstanding any fairies, spirits or demons. In other words, was her persecution all in her mind? She believed that she could see the faces of previous patients of hers in the clouds. Patients being the people that she believed she could heal. She spoke of rudderless boats that crossed the sky. Her housekeeper in London said she once embarked on a 40-day fast, although fortunately she gave in shortly after. And in London she became so transfixed by that opera about the fairies. She went to see it 23 times. Had her strenuous pursuits toward the harnessing of supernatural powers affected her health so badly, mainly through self-neglect of her body, and we could say of her mind, that she had driven herself into lunacy, and the demons and the fae were merely of her own mind. She would exhaust herself so at night by roaming and then coming back to scribble in that journal all day until she had no strength left. We still do not know, however, how she got to the spot in which she died, barefoot, with clean soles of her feet. Alpine McGregor says, 
much of the soles of her feet were in no way injured. So how could she have travelled over rough land with no marks on her feet? Was there some kind of involvement among the islanders themselves? Had she been born to the spot at which she was to die? Could someone else have carved the cross into the earth? Someone offended by this witch and her non-Christian activities? On an island considered to be the seat of Christianity? Did an islander kill her in a rite of sacrifice, like the film The Wicker Man? Was she offered up as a human sacrifice, like St Columba's beloved friend as an offering to the gods who protected Iona? Iona was firmly a Christian abode, formed from rocks so ancient it's believed by many to be one of the most sacred places on earth. Victorian writer and letters idol, Fiona MacLeod, or rather William Sharp, poetically expressed, to tell the story of Iona is to go back to God, and to end in God. According to Columbus' strong beliefs, he felt he must offer a living sacrifice. He must bury someone alive in the foundations of the chapel, he announced. And a willing victim stepped forward to offer himself, his friend Oran. Oran was as such, therefore, buried alive in the foundations. As this took place, Columba apparently requested that Oran's face be left uncovered, so that Columba could say farewell to his beloved friend. It's believed Oran, midway, changed his mind about dying, however, and began to blaspheme, to which Columba decided his face must be covered after all. Prior to this, it's believed that the island was once held precious by the Druids. Before St Columba settled here, Iona had been known by the old Gaelic name Inis Nan Dradhish, or the island of the Druids and a primary seat for pre-Christian Celtic Druid Magi. Scottish researcher Lewis Spence quotes The Mysteries of Britain from 1928 and says, Their chief seat in Scotland was the island of Iona. Later, in 563 AD, St Columba, the grandson of the Irish King Niall and twelve disciples, built a Celtic church on the island and founded a monastery and St Columba set about converting Scotland and England pagans to Christianity. Iona became a resting place for kings. A 1549 survey listed 48 Scottish kings and four Irish kings buried there. Columba banished all women from the island, for they were mischief. Did this still ring true now? Were the islanders affronted, insulted, angered by this woman Netafonorio's pro-occult proclivities in an established Christian land. She is out at night, wandering naked except for a dark robe, practising strange rites, and the rumours spread. This is heresy. This is the devil's work. And yet, Iona is known as a place long since attracting more spiritually minded folk. 
although Nettles perhaps one of the most eccentric to venture there. Did the islanders fear this witch at a time when New Age was less widespread, less acceptable than in our more modern times? Had she no right in treading on their ancient Christian land, disturbing the long-dead kings, and trying to heal the land and contact spirits? Was she tampering in a place sacred to them, long since established by St Columba as a Christian, not pagan, dwelling place? Did they come together in secrecy to rid themselves of this dark-eyed occultist? Or perhaps she frightened someone, seeing her naked but cloaked in black, knife in hand, a far-off gaze in her eyes which glared in intensity, roaming along at night silent like a panther. Perhaps someone attacked her in what they believed was a preemptive strike of self-defence. And yet, she had no wounds save on her feet, unless we believe what one of her closest friends revealed, some years later, that her body bore deep scratches. Bradford New Society of the Golden Dawn wrote, One psychic envisioned a man in his thirties with a moustache as her killer. We think Forneria was strangled, probably by an islander and the matter hushed up. Or was she silenced by members of her order? For an as yet unknown revelation of their secrets? Had an associate disproved of her, or been jealous of her, or felt she had shunned the sacred oath of her brethren, in some way by revealing secrets that could only be dealt with by death as punishment? Was she murdered by a mortal? Or had her adventures with the Green Ray Fairies seen a swift and violent backlash from them? The race who has no empathy or kinship with humans. Was Netta now in Summerland, the astral plane of heaven? Or had the fairies taken her soul? In Celtic mythology and theosophy, the realm of the dead, or Summerland, is the home of the spirits and the sheen, the fairies. In Netta's review of The Immortal Hour, the opera, based on William Sharp's writing, she chastises the opera for leaving out the original lines from the writing. There is no dream save this the dream of death, implying that death itself is only a dream and that the ultimate reality lies in the other world, where all of life is one life. Her summerland, her eternity, her life after death transcendence to fairyland, where all is immortal, did the fairy foe take her soul and leave her body behind? A number of letters of strange character were said to have been taken by the police after the discovery of her body, who then passed them on to the procurator fiscal for consideration. Perhaps they were merely her own writing 
but maybe they held clues of vital importance. The fate of these letters is not known. There is a postscript to this story, found in the Scotsman of December the 5th, in the year of her death, in which it is related that Netta's father was seized with great anxiety regarding his daughter. He was unable to account for his fears, yet could not shake off the feeling that something was wrong. Two days later, a telegram arrived, announcing that the dead body of his daughter had just been discovered. Are we right to merely shrug off thoughts of hidden, potent, fearful powers in the realm beyond our world, in the realm of Summerland and the Fae? Or were Conan Doyle and Bram Stoker onto something when they joined the Alpha and Omega? The difficulty is that it can be a one-way journey, like Netta's. What really did happen to Netta Fornerio?